Welcome to the Tori Sess Show. Today is Wednesday, the 28th of July. Pretty interesting day today um, in regards to news. Uh, I, I thought that we would start uh, with understanding that everything that we're supposed to be doing um, to today, in general, everything that we do, isn't just for us. It's for the future that we leave behind. For those of us that have children or those of us that have family that have children, it's really, really important. And for some godforsaken reason, people believe that being free is just whatever you think was normal. Your life, previous to President Trump ever being elected, was never normal. Ten years ago, was not. that's not normal. Normal in the sense that you think that everything you had, everything within your life was based on the fact that you were a free person, which you are not. It's not free. We are in a constant battle to remain free. And those that do not wish to fight, those that are not willing to defend freedom will never be free. There's hard work in freedom. We have to remember that we descend from immigrants that were rebels, right? OG rebels. And our forefathers created a document that they based this idea, this experiment of putting people from all over the world under one roof to self-govern. But over the years and before that ink was dry, was in your hands as you took it over to the printer, we're already conspiring on how to lull the people to sleep so that they can chip away at their freedoms. Everyone was asleep. I don't know which day you kind of cracked your eye open, but not only did you go to sleep, you voluntarily forfeited all of your freedoms because you were distracted with life, the life and the structure of life that they told you you should have and how we all collectively accept it. Voluntarily distracting yourself so that they can volunteer, <laughs> you can volunteer your rights. And every single time a major right was removed from you, was in a time of crisis. And during those crises, oh, don't let a good crisis go to waste, they divided every single one of us. Divided 
All of you are weak. Divided. They teach you how to hate each other, how to fight each other, how to put each other in little boxes with labels, white, black, pink, polka dot, yellow, you name it. Race versus race, religion versus religion, social status versus social status, gender versus gender. They have caused so much chaos in regards to access of information that it's as if the sky is dark and you cannot see. And so be it. They have darkened every single avenue of information you can even think of. Anything you can think of with their fabric that they weaved of this society that they wanted us to abide by. Plummeting into the depths of darkness of no knowledge. But collectively, we are strong. United. We are unstoppable. And get this, since we've been in the dark this long, damn, we could fight in the dark. Because the only light we need is truth. <laughs> and remember, like I always say, you should always walk in faith, never by sight. That's one of the best lines in the Bible, I think. One of the strongest ones that people should adhere of. All of them. They think that these little cells that they've created, their sunrise movements, their Antifas, their soy boys, their little unicorn riot groups, all of them, your fake ass media, your rhino media, your wannabes, your decoders, all of them, they're mercenaries because these groups are not fighting for tomorrow and freedom and their children's freedoms. They're fighting for coin. <laughs> Coin runs out at some point, and therefore they are not warriors. Freedom stems from unity. And to be honest, to change anything, all you need is about 1%, and I'm damn sure we've got more than 1% on board. And now, these this past, you know, what, eight years, they've seen us on our knees. This past year, they've definitely seen us to our knees. They see us on our knees and they think that we have succumbed to them, that we have broken, but no, let them think we are weak because what they don't realize is before a great war, everyone kneels to pray and prepare. I hear from many, well, we can't do this now. We need Trump here. Look, he's going to go run for speaker of the house. He's going to shut up. When is it going to be the time? To do something. When? When you've got the Karen at your door dragging your kid out of the house because you don't want to get a vaccine? When? When you go to the grocery store and they tell you you don't have any food credits. Which one is it going to be? When they're going to tell you your penalty for running a red light was deducted automatically from your credit system. <laughs> you think it's a joke? Their fate is already sealed. God wins. The only way to understand how you win is to see that unity is humanity. And what they lack is humanity. And therefore, everything is up to us. The world and your future is yours to make nobody else's. 
yours. Nobody else's. So how do you fight? Does that mean we need to get up in arms? And No. See, the one thing that our forefathers had real help with was ensuring that things would not be able to go there. See, right now, it seems, it seems ridiculous. I want you to imagine being a person from the future that is standing in a store that's for food, wanting to purchase milk for their child, but because they didn't show up to work on time, they, on a delay, of course, deducted 100 credits from his account and didn't bother to tell him. So he didn't know and he couldn't get food. And what he could do was possibly go somewhere else and maybe donate blood, right? Or do something to get a couple of credits. But if he goes and pawns off possessions or anything, then he gets housing credits deducted, which means that his housing uh, allowance will be sacrificed. And the, the month after that is a punitive measure, he will be degraded to the next lot of homes for those that are in a lower class. They hate you. Because nothing that they are doing is allowed. Nothing that they have done is legal. Yet, because the media is not talking about it, and who do you consider your media? Let's be fair. Do you consider Fox, OAN, Newsmax, Epic Times, CNN? Who the fuck is your media? The media are so important. You have no idea how important the media is. In fact, I have a great conversation for you guys to hear about the media. That's really important that you hear it. The mission of the National Constitution Center to promote, and we're so proud to be here at the Great Bush Center to discuss it. Well, so you've asked a really central and important question. Why did Madison think that the media and the press were central to the success of democracy? Well, I'll, I'll try to do this as, as just as intensely and, and, and as, in as condensed a form as possible, but let's begin with a new media technology the Interactive Constitution. This is this <laughs> thrilling new online platform that the National Constitution Center has launched that bring together the best liberal and conservative scholars in America to write about every clause of the Constitution. And I want you all to download it. Not now because I'm talking, but after the show. <laughs> and when you go there, you'll see um, that Madison thought that there was an amendment that was the most important in all the ones he proposed that was not adopted. And it says the following. I'd need my constitutional reading glasses to do it, except I can uh, I'm gonna get them here. Um, no state shall violate the equal rights of conscience or freedom of the press or trial by jury in criminal cases. No state shall violate those rights. Remember, the original Bill of Rights applies only to Congress, and the states are free to do what they like. But Madison thought that the rights of conscience and freedom of the press were so important, so fundamental, that the state shouldn't be able to violate them either 
And that amendment did not pass, and it took the Civil War, the bloodiest in American history, to make Madison's vision a reality through the 14th Amendment. Why did he think that? Because he believed that the rights of speech and conscience and press were natural rights that came from God or nature and not from government. They inhere in all human beings in the state of nature. And when we form governments, we surrender temporary control over certain rights in order to create greater security and safety of the retained natural rights, like the rights of speech, conscience, and of press. Why did he think they were central to a democracy? Because Madison saw a tension between populism and constitutionalism. He did not believe America was a direct democracy. He had studied failed democracies like Greece and Rome and thought they led to demagogues and the mob. Madison said in Federalist 51, even if every Athenian were Socrates, Athens would still have become a mob because in Athens, large groups would debate quickly and have quick Twitter votes or Brexit polls or snap judgments. And as a result, liberty would fail. Madison created a representative republic, and the key to the success of the representative republic was slow deliberation over time. It's impossible to overstate the element of time in Madison's thought. He believed that majorities should rule, but he thought that quick majorities could be ruled by passion rather than reason. And only with time to deliberate and to inform people about the facts could majorities reach thoughtful votes that would serve the public interests in private rights as opposed to degenerating into factions which were animated by passion. Key point here, time. So you need time to inform people of what laws you are passing. You need time to inform people of changes that are happening, but this is a double-edged sword. With time, people forget, especially when they do not have media on their side. People forget. The fact that you forget, they get to do things. You forgot that they wanted to use your tax dollars to fund candidates that you don't want in any state they want. You forgot that they wanted to make the FEC reflect the majority party, which means when that happens, the majority party, the alleged majority party, because they're one in the same, will never leave. Time was important. Time was very, very important because the media was important, information was important, and the right to conscious decisions, consciousness, conscious thought. Your ability to think is what they were referring to. Why would they say that then? Listen. That would invade those liberties. That's why he thought that the press was so central, because the press could inform people about the character of their representatives so they could choose wise representatives who would deliberate in the public interest rather than serving the interests of factions. And that's why he worried at the end of his life that new media technologies like the broadside press would not adequately reach the expanse of the large new republic and inform citizens and give them the facts necessary to reach thoughtful, deliberative judgments. So obviously lots to discuss. We have a dream team panel to discuss it. But what would Madison have thought of new media technologies? He would have been alarmed by the speed with which the debate is taking place. I can, the National Constitution Center is nonpartisan. 
Our mandate comes from Congress. We have to educate the public about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. I can say with complete nonpartisan con confidence that the idea of tweeting presidents or tweeting representatives would be a Madisonian nightmare because he said in Federalist 10 that representatives should never communicate directly with the people. They had to deliberate slowly over time. And Madison also would have been distressed by the speed with which the 24-hour news cycle and the quickness with which things can be posted on social media makes slow deliberation impossible. Mm. Thank you. We're going to come back. Now, see, that's a good point, but it's wrong. See, that is seen from the eyes of someone in the 1800s and 1700s. The problem here is, is when your media is bought, when you have programs promoting the notions that you want people to see. Direct communication with your representative is imperative, especially in a time like this, to know exactly where they stand because of this mass media overload. We are overloaded with so much junk for the brain, it's ridiculous. And not only that, the stuff that we do need to know about, we're not even told about. Back and talk a bit more about social media tonight, but I want to turn a little bit from Founding Fathers' view of the relationship between the people and the media and ask Amy to talk to us a bit about um, the views of the people about the media. Um, Pew plays a vital role in gathering insights about the issues, attitudes, and trends shaping the world today. What can you tell us, Amy, about Americans' historical support of freedom of expression and freedom of the press, and have those feelings changed in recent years, and what are, what are you seeing in your work? Thank you, and, and thank you also for, for inviting me to join you all tonight. Um, so the Americans have had a very long-held, um, strong support for freedom of the press and freedom of expression. Uh, and that remains to a large degree. And especially comparing it with many other countries around the world, uh, American support on many, on many measures around these areas far exceeds uh, the numbers that come from other countries. So there is a very strong support. However, uh, there are tensions um, that are pushing up against that support right now. And many are stemming from the rise of digital technology, from the developments of digital technology, um, from the pace um, of, of the media and from political dynamics. So if we think about sort of three elements that are at play, um, on the one hand, we think about the content space of the web from uh, the fact of the ease of publishing, the potential for revenue, uh, the potential for very wide reach, that brings all kinds of different content producers into this digital space. Um, from you know, traditional news organizations that are moving there to um, campaigns, elected leaders themselves. We have 30% of the public that got some of their election news directly from one of the campaigns. Interest groups, advocacy groups, 20-some percent during the election got news from those uh, types of entities to what's in the news a lot today around sort of maliciously oriented uh, organizations that may be purposely putting out false information. Um, so that's a lot to contend with. At the same time, you now have nine out of 10 U.S. adults that are getting at least some of their news digitally. So that means coming up against this information are portions of the public that have more or less interest and knowledge of current events in terms of how much they're keeping up with the facts of what's going on, um, the different levels of digital savviness uh, in terms of how one would parse through this different information that people are coming up against. Um, and we're at a point in our country of extreme intense um, uh, uh, political divides. Uh, in that have played out 
in the uh, attitudes that people have about the news media generally and the specific sources that people are choosing to turn to and to trust. So when you add those elements up, there is a tension on the desire and the strong support for freedom of expression, for freedom of the speech, with what does this mean for the information flow uh, in our country today. And that's what a lot of debate and conversation is, is happening around right now. And I think we've got a slide that, um, some Pew data talking about how Americans are consuming media today and what mediums that they're using. To sure, so this is, yeah, this is a, a, a um, question that asks about sort of the platform. So you'll see the um, television has always had the widest reach, the, the, the overall widest reach. And this is asking about often. So it's how, you know, you get news often from these different platforms. It's not ever. Um, and, and television has always had the highest in our country. And what you'll see is just in the last year, those two data points are just a year apart. We're really beginning to see a precipitous decline um, in television watching um, with that continued rise in digital. So we're now at just a seven percentage point gap um, in those who are often getting news from online versus TV. Um, radio has remained actually relatively steady at about a quarter over the last several years. In print, I should say, this is the print form of newspapers. So this is about um, platform, not specific sources, um, you know, is now very low. Most of that audience had transitioned in reading to the web, um, you know, years ago and watching has not moved to the web in the same way. But most of that shift over the last year is among the older population that's now moving more away from television and uh, more to the web. So this is why they had to control the media, cyberspace. As a linguist, and I love linguistics, kiverniticos horos. That's what cyberspace is in Greek. Kiverniticos means a place of governance, land of government, space of governance, cyber government. I mean, no wonder... In Greece, they've taken that away and now anglified the world word to internet when it's kiverniticos horos, which means cyberspace, which means cyber is the word for government or governing. So horos is space. So government space. That is the actual translation. So what they had to do was take out the very essence of what our founding fathers found was important, which was the media. Informing citizens was imperative for this republic to function. Therefore, they weaponized the media to misinform the public so they, in fact, have no clue what is going on. And therefore, the public is lulled with the wonderful lullaby of lies. Their job is simply there to misinform or not inform the public at all. And so it's quite fascinating how we find ourselves in this position and don't realize 
that this was all planned. Did you know that during um, Neil Gorsuch's uh, confirmation, he was asked a very specific question? I'm going to play that question for you. Give me a second for those that are watching on video so I can put it up so you can see it as well. He was asked his opinion on a very specific amendment. Take a listen. And the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. What does that mean? Well, Senator, I think it, it means what it says. The Ninth Amendment's not been much interpreted by the Supreme Court. Uh, there are different views about its effect and its meaning. And um, I don't doubt uh, that there'll be cases and controversies in which I would, if confirmed, and maybe even if I'm not, asked to construe the meaning of that. It's, it's one of those amendments that hasn't had a lot of judicial attention. Um, we've talked about some others. There's a publication in 1950 I read called The Forgotten Ninth Amendment. Right, right. So that's 60 years ago. It well, was forgotten then. Senator Lee's written a book that includes some discussion of this as well. Uh, Judge Bork referred to it one time as an ink blot, seemingly implying that it could just be ignored. Uh, is there any precedent that we need to know about to understand the Ninth Amendment as it comes? So these fuckers knew. Comes down through the court. <laughs> um, there are amendments that have been less interpreted and more interpreted. The Ninth Amendment is one of those that has been less interpreted, Senator. Uh, what's the best way to understand how the Constitution divides power uh, between the federal government, the states, and the people? And in particular, how do we know whether or not some power that has not been specifically enumerated and given to the federal government, since the people give the government power, the government doesn't give us rights, the people uh, gave the federal government certain uh, enumerated powers. If it's not enumerated, how do we know if it belongs to the states or to the people? Um, Senator, uh, we talked a lot about federalism in this last few days. Uh, the people in this country are sovereign. As Lincoln said, it's a government by the people for the people. So the people are sovereign. And it depends on what, what powers they've given to the state government and the federal government. Um, and there are variations between the states as to what authorities are given and how. So they already knew what the problem would be. That would be a problem for them. See, the Ninth Amendment, this inkblot, and the Tenth are exactly what they don't want us to look at because they will be debated. And I have to say, the Supreme Court Justice, all of them, it's not their job to interpret shit. We don't need their red digital string. We don't need any fucking decoders. It's in English. And that was the whole purpose of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Clear as day. You read it, it tells you. Whatever's not stated there belongs to the people in the states, unless explicitly said so. So we're going to evaluate this so that you can understand just how free you are. And I know a lot of you don't... Um, this guy's super liberal, but he's super fair. And this is him in 2013 when he wasn't an angry, I hate myself for being white, white privilege man. 
Take a listen to this guy. I need a haircut. Here we go. But I don't care. We're going to do the Constitution for Dummies series, batter up at Amendment 9, one of the more mysterious amendments in the first 10. So wherever you stand on the issues, we want to make sure, whether you're right, center, left, or cray-cray, that you are smart. You're standing smart on the issues. So giddy up for learning. I'm raising the roof. And here we go. The Ninth Amendment. All right, so let's read the words first. Shazam. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So the origins of that amendment actually spring from kind of the uh, the ratification uh, debate that we were having between the feds and the anti-feds. Of course, the anti-feds want the Bill of Rights, and Madison and Hamilton are saying that we really don't need the Bill of Rights. Hamilton and Fed 84 states that by writing down our liberty, it's in a sense saying we know what liberty is, we're going to write it down, and therefore we're guaranteeing liberty. And that would be a mistake, Hamilton argues, by saying that in a sense we're limiting our liberty by doing that, by writing it down. So in response to that, we have the Ninth Amendment, which basically says if we didn't write it down, if it's not in one through eight, that doesn't mean that there can't be other rights that are retained by the people. Of course, now the argument becomes, what does that mean, retained by the people? Wait, so listen carefully to what he said. So when they wrote the Constitution, they didn't want to say, well, I have the liberty of walking down the street and I have the liberty of doing cartwheels in my house if I feel like it. I have the liberty to say whatever the hell I want, wherever I want, as long as it's on federal property. Right. If they outline, then it constricts where your liberty is. So instead, they said, here's how we're going to make it clear. So there's no need for interpretation. If we've explicitly said it, it's ex if it says that you can only exercise free speech on federal ground, then that's what it is. Boom. If it says you have free speech, it doesn't define private, whatever, that's deliberated. If it says you have free speech anywhere on earth and you go to the moon and you start putting up a soapbox, maybe you're committing a crime. I'm just saying you don't have the right to do that. I'm trying to... To, to, to have you understand that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment were literally a guide to stop interpreting shit and pay attention. It's in plain fucking English. If you don't see what you're looking for, it means the people still hold that right. The liberty to dance spontaneously does not have to be explicitly put out there. That is a right to the person. The liberty to be able to eat red meat is the right of any person. You don't have to put it out there. That's their right. The liberty to choose their health care is a right. You don't have to write it down because that's just a right that the people still own and have not defined. So anything that hasn't been explicitly stated is the people's. So the Ninth Amendment can be used by progressives as, in a sense, an accelerator of the 14th Amendment. No state shall deny its citizens equal protection under the law. So if you take an issue which is controversial to some, I guess, would be gay marriage. Gay marriage, marriage isn't in the first eight amendments. In fact, it's considered to be a reserved right protected by the 10th Amendment. It's up to the states. But if we as a society judge that that's a human right, that it's substantive democracy, that we're born with that liberty to marry who we want, that no state 
can use its power to deny that equal protection 14th Amendment. And we can't use the Constitution and enumerated rights, just the fact it's not an enumerated right, to deny that right. So in other words, you know, of course, the right remains to you. You want to marry um, uh, same sex? You want to marry an alien? You want to marry a cat, a dog, a fish, furniture? You have every freaking right to do it. It's not restricted by the Constitution. Therefore, you own that right. And your state doesn't even have that right to take it away from you. Kind of like you have the right to put whatever shit you want in your body. And your state is definitely not allowed to take it from you damn straight the federal government isn't either others on the right justice bork who uh was denied a uh, spot on the supreme court he called the ninth amendment kind of an ink blot that you really could see whatever you wanted to in it now has the ninth amendment been used exclusively by the court no but it has been used as a rationalization in certain concurrent decisions. So, for instance, in Griswold versus Connecticut, 1966, I could be wrong, basically contraceptives. Connecticut has a state law which states that couples, people can't buy contraceptives. And the Supreme Court ruled that there was a kind of a guaranteed right of privacy in the Fourth Amendment. And some of the justices argued that privacy could be Ninth Amendment. Just because we didn't write down that privacy is a guaranteed amendment, we can't deny it because we didn't write it down. Many people see the Ninth Amendment really. You see how this works? Just because we didn't foresee that the government's going to force you to take medication in order to enjoy all the other liberties that have been enumerated or not within your constitution wasn't written down, doesn't mean that you still don't have the fucking right to choose your health care regime. Not as a guarantee of rights in the constitution, but more of kind of a how-to directional manual amendment of how we should be reading the previous amendments in light of the constitution and natural rights. Libertarians see the Ninth Amendment kind of like an accelerator of liberty, basically saying that if there's any question, there's a lower court decision or if there's a jury decision that um, puts into question one of the first eight Bill of Rights, that the court using the Ninth Amendment should always side on the side of liberty, really expanding the Bill of Rights into more of a loose interpretational um, context. So that's basically the Ninth Amendment for you guys, whether you see it more as kind of protecting the states and the people's ability through their legislators to come up with new rights that would be protected, or you see it as an issue of substantive democracy, that uh, we're born with liberty. And just because we didn't write it down when we wrote the Bill of Rights doesn't mean that we can allow majority populations and large factions to deny the people that right. So there you go. There's the Ninth Amendment. I don't know. Why don't you put down in the comments? I would love to see what he has to say about forced vaccinations after that fucking video, right? So you haven't explicitly put privacy, but you're, you are afforded privacy. You haven't explicitly written down that you command everything that goes into your body. Therefore, you have that right. Now, one thing you need to understand is sometimes things occur because people do nothing and it's the norm this is what they're trying to do the mask wear no mask this mask and everybody get vaccinated we're going to make this normal we're going to force companies to do it for us uh that's how it's going to work it's not 
The Ninth and the Tenth Amendment, I like to call rules of construction. And there's this incredible um, piece by the Federalist Society for the Ninth Amendment. But I'll tell you what, it's the Tenth Amendment that really knocks it out. So here we go. From the very beginning, the whole point of the Ninth Amendment was to prevent the Bill of Rights from being a ceiling on the rights we have against the government. It's simply a floor. Essentially, it's a whole harmless provision for unenumerated rights. It doesn't elevate them into constitutional rights, but it leaves them exactly as they were before. The Ninth Amendment is the most important sentence in the whole Constitution. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Federalists, who wanted the Constitution ratified without a Bill of Rights, argued or warned that adding an enumeration of rights would be dangerous because it might suggest that the only rights that people had were the ones enumerated and that the people had surrendered up to the general government any rights that had not been enumerated. And Madison came up with a brilliant solution. He said, well, why don't we just have a rule, a rule of construction that says the enumeration of certain rights in the Constitution for example, in the Bill of Rights, shall not be construed to deny or disparage the existence of others. Very clever. That's what the Ninth Amendment said, and that's its origin. So the original meaning of the Ninth Amendment, in my view, the current meaning as well, uh, is simply that the Constitution is not a finite list of rights. It's more open-ended than that. Now, the question that the Ninth Amendment raises uh, is what is the legal status of the unenumerated rights, the ones that, um, that haven't been listed in the Bill of Rights or elsewhere. You first of all have to understand the meaning of the phrase rights retained by the people. A retained right is a natural right. That is a right that people have before they form government and then they retain after they form government. It means that these are rights that, pr that pre-existed the Ninth Amendment. They're not created by the Ninth Amendment. Those rights are simply the liberty to do what you will with what rightfully belongs to you. There is no formula. And that, of course, leads some people to say, oh, well, if there is no formula to tell you for sure what the unenumerated rights are, they must not exist. But that doesn't follow. There's no formula to tell you exactly what rights you have under the freedom of speech either. The evidence is pretty powerful that natural rights were treated as, a, as authoritative uh, up until the point when they were displaced by a specific, explicit, intentional, positive law. A positive law is an enacted law by the sovereign, as opposed to, say, a natural law or, or a law which uh, has its force from longstanding custom. For the first 100, 150 years of Keyword there. It's not like it is from custom. We, we the people, have allowed them to create these laws and assumptions based on custom. Because we have not enforced and stated our rights, they have taken them away. That doesn't mean that they get away with it. Now, I know that we talked about a letter. And I think that we sh we are going to not. I think I, we are. I'm pretty much complete with a decree and demand that we will be sending out. And uh, you know, while many could say, "Well, we have to phrase it in another way," 
right? Uh, anytime that you demand an action be taken by any member of law enforcement, law court, you must have a standing to injury and you must have a bona fide concern that is evident. And the one thing that you have to remember is that every law and every regulation within this nation is created under the guise of ensuring that there is no lawlessness and no collapse of the government. Those are the two key foundations. Anytime you do something, it must be done to make sure those two things don't happen. That's, that's key. I want you to remember that. Now listen to what else they tell you here. Of this country, all the rights retained by the people, both enumerated and unenumerated, were largely protected by holding state legislatures to a proper conception of their powers. All the focus was on powers, not on rights. Going into the 20th century, a big change happened because political progressives started urging the court to engage in what we now call judicial restraint and what was then called judicial self-restraint in which they deferred to Congress or to state legislatures by adopting a presumption of constitutionality and in some cases an irrebuttable presumption of constitutionality. Until the 1930s, roughly speaking, the Supreme Court was much more sympathetic to the claims of liberty. As long as you were an adult male and not a kid, and not a woman, it should be up to you, not up to the government. After the New Deal, and especially into the Warren Court, the justices started to pay very little attention to the text of the Constitution. The idea here was let Congress and let state legislatures regulate economic activity however they wish, and then we may put some restrictions on their ability to regulate what we might today call personal liberties. The need to focus on the Ninth Amendment begins with the 1938 case of U.S. versus Caroline Products. In that case, the court in a very famous footnote, footnote four said, you only get heightened scrutiny if it's an enumerated right. Caroline Products footnote simply uh, announces that the court will give a broad construction to power granting provisions of the uh, a constitution and it will also enforce enumerated rights uh, but that it will um, neither give a limiting construction of the powers granted nor will it enforce unenumerated rights. Um, I don't think that contradicts the Ninth Amendment uh, at all. Remember that the Ninth Amendment simply leaves unenumerated rights uh, as they were before. It, deny, it does not elevate them into uh, constitutional rights. In the body of Caroline products, it says that somebody may still challenge a restriction on liberty as not being within the proper powers of the legislature to enact. But that gets essentially reversed by Williamson v. Optical in 1955. <laughs> Williamson versus Lee Optical is an extreme case because it's a law which is obviously just a bit of special interest legislation and probably the product of corruption. Williamson v. Lee Optical marks the end of the court's willingness to protect the unenumerated rights retained by the people that the Ninth Amendment is there to safeguard. The case stands for the proposition that unless you have an enumerated right, 
you get no protection at all. The legislation will simply be upheld as rational. This is what's come to be known as the rational basis test, which if you take Williamson literally means the conceivable basis test because the judges will uphold any law that they can conceive has a rational basis, even if that's not the reason why the law was passed. But the Supreme Court, I think, correctly held that the Equal Protection Clause was not designed to protect us from the follies of our legislature um, when it decides the domain of legislation. If the Equal Protection Clause empowered courts uh, to second guess the domain of every enacted law, effectively it would turn the courts into a super legislature, the, taking over the, the job for which we have elected our representatives. The question of which rights are included in liberty and which are not, of how much deference there should be to the state when it regulates liberty in the interest of equalizing bargaining power. Those are hard questions, but they have nothing to do with the rule of construction in the Ninth Amendment. Interest in the Ninth Amendment grew in the last several decades when the Supreme Court started giving heightened scrutiny to laws that intruded upon one of the enumerated rights and limited the protection only to the enumerated rights, which seemed to implicate the Ninth Amendment's warning or admonition that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Griswold versus Connecticut, the contraceptive case, um, may be as close as we've come to the Supreme Court recognizing the Ninth Amendment as an independent source of uh, legal authority. Griswold versus Connecticut involves a restriction on the sale and distribution of contraceptive devices to married couples. A majority of the Supreme Court invalidated the law in Griswold, invoking what's now called substantive due process to protect an unenumerated right of privacy. One of the justices, Justice Goldberg, in a concurring opinion said, this is warranted by the Ninth Amendment because the Ninth Amendment acknowledges the fact that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights does not preclude the protection of an unenumerated right like a right of privacy. In effect, he used the Ninth Amendment for the first time in the way that it was intended to be used as a rule of construction, as a way of saying, in our kind of society, something that is a fundamental right can't be denied just because you can't point to chapter and verse in the Constitution that lists it. it. Boom. So here is the most important part. Where in the Constitution can they mark that they can deprive us of a liberty that we have, which is to govern our own bodies in the case of a pandemic? Nowhere. The Constitution doesn't cease to exist because they claim there's a pandemic. I may want to die from the plague. I may want to go and have sex with a shit ton of people that are HIV positive. Does the government have a say in that? No. So the government cannot deprive us of the right of what we put in our body and how we choose to take care of our health. I may believe that, you know, I only take turmeric. That's it. And anything else is rubbish. The government's going to tell me, no, you need to line up and get a vaccine every month, every four months, every year, or else you're a danger. Where does it say in the Constitution that you have the right to restrict my liberty and my enjoyment of those liberties? And my ability to livelihood, where does it say it?
doesn't. But if consensus thinks that there's a pandemic and that you're a threat, then so be it. Why do you think the masks are coming on? They know what's coming. Rejected the idea that only enumerated rights get protected. But on the other hand, it did not revive the original way of protecting unenumerated rights by saying that all legislative restrictions on liberty need to be scrutinized to see if they are rationally related to an end that is within the proper scope of government. Goldberg seems pretty careful in his opinion to deny that their rights actually come from the Ninth Amendment. But unfortunately, that was just a solo opinion by Justice Goldberg. The Richmond newspaper's case in 1980, which coincidentally is the first case I ever argued in the Supreme Court, is the first case in which a plurality opinion of the Supreme Court relied on the Ninth Amendment to establish the existence of a fundamental right. In that case, the fundamental right was the right of the public and the press to observe criminal trials in the absence of some extraordinary need to exclude the public from some part of the trial. And Chief Justice Berger, writing a plurality opinion, he invoked the First Amendment. He said the First Amendment might not quite suffice. But then he dropped a footnote that said, the history of the Ninth Amendment shows, as Madison explained to the Congress, that the fact that the right in question, the right of the press and the public to observe a trial that the parties don't want anyone to observe, the fact that that is not explicitly protected doesn't prevent it from being a basic right. You can look to the case of Troxel versus Granville, decided in 2000. A local family court had ordered visitation rights over the mother's objection, and the Supreme Court reversed that and argued that the mother had a right to raise her own children the way she sought fit. The right to raise your children as you see fit is nowhere enumerated in the text of the Bill of Rights. If you limit the protection of constitutional rights only to the rights that are enumerated in the text of the Constitution, then the state can take your children away from you. It's hard to imagine a right that's more fundamental than the right to raise your children as you see fit. And yet, that's an unenumerated right that happily the Supreme Court protected in Troxel versus Granville. Justice Scalia dissented. Why? Because he said, although the right to raise one's child as you see fit was one of the rights retained by the people that the Ninth Amendment protected, he argued that it was not up to judges to decide what those rights were and then protect them. Scalia refused to countenance an interpretation of the Ninth Amendment protecting uh, that right because of the dangers of empowering unelected courts to be able to basically make up uh, the content of uh, rights. Exactly. So here's where I needed to take it. So while the court upheld the right, right, for the mother to do so, that means the court says that you have the right to raise your kid as you see fit. Therefore, if they come knocking on your door for not vaccinating your kid, there's already a case for that. Now, the problem is, is that we can't have the courts decide what rights are protected. Now the right of you to raise your child as you see fit is an enumerated right by case law. Huh. You see, this is how it works. So you have to ask yourself, by why, with what rights do they do all this? So here's where we're going to introduce 
my favorite, the 10th Amendment. The 10th Amendment. And we're going to go back to Hip Hughes, uh, the school teacher, who is... Hey, guys. Well who I, who's a teacher, regular teacher, who did all these great videos in 2013. Like I said, I'd love to hear his opinion right now. Here we go. Welcome to Hip Hughes History. So glad that you could make it. We're going to bang out the 10th Amendment for you guys in the next few minutes as we continue our Constitution for Dummies series, explaining it simply, not because you're simple, but because everybody needs to know some basic stuff before you get to the fancy stuff. So strap on your boots of learning. We're about to knock out some 10th Amendment. Giddy up. All right, 10th Amendment. So if you're a libertarian, if you're like a Ron Paul guy or girl out there, you love the 10th Amendment. If you could have babies with the 10th Amendment, you'd have babies with the 10th Amendment. Let's look at the words and then we can talk it out. Here are the words. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So there's the Reserved Powers Amendment. Um, in, in terms of a mnemonic device, sometimes I'll think of the Tenth Amendment as being the last seat in the Bill of Rights, thinking that it's reserved, it's saved for somebody. But basically what this means is that if it's not in the Constitution, if you can't find the power in the delegated portion of the Constitution, which mostly is Article One, Section 8, which lists congressional powers, then if we don't give it to the federal government, then it gets kicked to the states. Very simple examples would be something like like marriage laws or uh, the DMV uh, dealing with... Or mask fucking mandates. Are you getting this? Mask mandates, mask mandates, vaccination mandates. Where the fuck did Congress get that power? Nowhere. CDC? Nowhere in there that has powers. Who the fuck has that power? We do. The states, the states or the people? We do. So again, why have we allowed them to do all this, all this time. Tori, you should have said this before. No, because it wasn't time to. You have to see it to believe it. Because if you were going to remedy something that hasn't happened yet, you're not going to be paying attention. So we are doing something about this. We're going to do something about this at the right freaking time. It has to be the right time. You never take a cake out of the oven before it's ready. You have to see it. You have to. Again, through what authority do we have the CDC passing federal mandates? To what authority do we have businesses mandating vaccination? We saw how Governor DeSantis dealt with that. Mm -hmm. And when they go to court, they're going to have to say, with what authority does a private company decide what is it? Are you a specialist? Can you prove it with actual numbers, not whatever the TV says? That's what's important. So again, with what authority? None. Congress doesn't have those fucking powers. The presidency doesn't have those fucking powers. Who has that power? You do. And what have you been doing? Sitting on your thumb crying about Karens because they're overwhelming you by the media when you have all the power. You are the damn force. And you're letting them think that they're in charge.
driver's licenses. Those are dealt at the state level. Education is basically a, uh, a reserve powers. Of course, this gets muddied when we start looking at other parts of the Constitution, like the 14th Amendment, which guarantees state um, states treated citizens equally. So if you're talking about marriage and gay marriage, certainly marriage is a reserved power. Uh, the 10th Amendment kicks that to the states, but the states can't deny equal protection. And of course, that's a very muddled, weird argument that you can have down in the comments below. Uh, an easy way to think of this if you're a kid and you're trying to wrap your head around what reserve powers is, is to think of it this way. Um, if your parents made notice that they were going to put everything they could tell you to do on the fridge and they put up there, they could set your curfew and they put on the fridge that they could, um, I don't know, uh, decide what color the house is going to be, where you're going to go on vacation, what food you're going to cook for dinner. Those would be delegated powers, powers given to your parents. And you probably wouldn't have a problem with that. But if it wasn't on the list, let's say, for instance, what posters you could put up in your bedroom, you would make the presumption that that was reserved for you to make up your mind. And that's the concept. So the 10th Amendment limits the power of the federal government by giving that power to the states or respectively to the people. Those are the words of the 10th Amendment. Now, where does it get fishy? It gets fishy when you look at the flexible parts of the Constitution, like the General Welfare Clause, the Elastic Clause, the Interstate Commerce Clause, all found in Section 1, Article 8. If you're going to read anything in the Constitution, read Article 1, Section 8, and read the 10th Amendment, because you can see that the Constitution um, is kind of bipolar. Um, for instance, the General Welfare Clause is in the very beginning of Section 8, where it says that one of the jobs of Congress is to provide for the general welfare, right? Another one is to regulate commerce between the states. Then when you kick in the Elastic Clause, which is the last phrasing in Article 1, Section 8, Congress shall make all laws necessary and proper for executing the, for executing the foregoing powers, that list, then you start getting muddy. So if I have the ability to make all laws necessary and proper to provide for the general welfare and to regulate commerce between the states, then definitions count. And we start seeing those being used to expand power. So, for instance, um, regulating commerce between the states has been expanded to mean um, regulating pollution between the states, that that between the states is interstate commerce. So you can't trust one state to regulate pollution. Therefore, Congress is going to regulate pollution. Another example would be actually Obamacare uses interstate commerce clause because health insurance is a commerce that can go between states. Drugs like marijuana and why the federal government can still arrest people through the DEA is commerce between states. Uh, we wouldn't have Social Security without the general welfare clause and the Elastic Clause, or Medicaid, or Medicare. And some of you probably are clapping out there saying, absolutely, we shouldn't have those things. See the libertarian argument that if we're going to take the Elastic Clause and Interstate Commerce Clause and stretch them to mean anything, then it nullifies and voids out the Tenth Amendment. Why do we have the Tenth Amendment if we're not going to use it? And then, of course, you'd say, why are we going to have the Elastic Clause and the General Welfare Clause if we're not going to use it? You can fight it out in the comments below. There you go. I don't know what else to say. I feel bipolar. There you go, guys. Make sure you check out other lectures. Subscribe to Hip Use History and click the link below. 
Now, um, his most recent videos aren't <laughs> the best. They show that he has fallen into some uh, deep uh, liberal type thing. But I thought I'd wrap up this, um, this portion of the show with uh, information from the John Birch Society talking about the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Take a listen. So the Constitution itself, which is embodied in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, the limitation of the powers of the federal government. Let us first make the point that nationalism is a step away from freedom. We have a federation, not a national government. The states united formed our government. They formed a compact called a federal government, not a national government. Now let us give a 20th century example of moving from a federal government to a national one, Germany. The German government after World War I was a federal government made up of many German states. These states had been independent countries prior to 1870 and pulled together into a united Germany under the Kaiser at that time. In 1933, when Hitler came to power with his German Workers' National Socialist Party, or Nazi, they wiped out the German State Federation and imposed a national government with power not just over the individual, but over the German states as well, with a national police to enforce it. Our founders were worried that once the federal government was established, they would move toward making it over into a national government with universal power over the states. As a result, they adopted the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Keep in mind that these were sovereign states agreeing to unite into a federal government, a partnership, not a government that would rule everything. The Ninth Amendment reads, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Constitution was written to delineate the powers of the government and the responsibilities of each branch of government. It was a document that limited government. In other words, you can do this and this whereas the Bill of Rights helped make sure that everyone understood that the government could not do certain things, especially anything not written down specifically in the Constitution. The Ninth Amendment was written to basically state that in case we forgot to point things out, unless the government was specifically given the power in the Constitution, then government can't do it, and that even if some rights are not mentioned, then you cannot deny the people of these rights. One of these rights was so fundamental it was assumed it would never be violated, the right to life. So it was never included in the Bill of Rights. Much has changed since that time. Tenth Amendment says much of the same thing, only in stronger language. Power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, if a specific power was not given to the federal government within the Constitution, the federal government could not assume that power. Those powers are with the people and the states, not the federated government. The 10th Amendment can be used to stop the federal government from taking unto itself powers that are not delegated to it. State legislatures using the 10th Amendment can nullify something the federal government is trying to impose on the people of the state or the state government. There is a nullifying movement in the country formed to educate and impel state governments to stop the excesses of the federal government. Whenever enough states have done so, history shows that the federal government backs away 
from imposing unconstitutional edicts. In other words, a state can pass a resolution calling for the nullification of an unconstitutional federal law or edict, and that cannot be enforced within the state. If enough states do so, the federal law or edict goes away, since it's unenforceable. Now, one of the most famous of such a procedure was the Fugitive Slave Act, which was to force the return from non-slave states of slaves who had fled slavery in the South. The northern states, by and large, ignored the law. One of the most shocking assertions made by a president of the United States is that he has full powers simply by declaring a state of emergency, regardless of the reason. This is an edict, not legislation or even permission by the people, and it violates the Tenth Amendment. This thinking and process has developed over the years of the 20th century and culminated in the Nixon administration. When he entered into the Federal Register, he had full powers if and when he would declare a state of emergency. Ooh, pay attention. When Nixon did that, a very few noticed. And those who did notice, only a few protested or even pointed it out to others. Now a president can think that he has these powers simply by declaring he has them, by signing a piece of paper and handing out the pens to those in attendance. The governors do the same. And in the coronavirus pandemic of 2020, use such assumed powers to rule as dictators over their states in complete violation of the federal and state constitutions. Neither the Congress or the state legislatures stand up to this type of usurpation today. Unconstitutional laws and edicts completely violate, violate the idea of a government of we the people. And the media does nothing to point out this problem to the people. Neither do the schools. Now that we've gone through the Bill of Rights, you can see that much of these rights have been eroded. The very spirit of the Bill of Rights has been eroded. The flame of liberty in the hearts of the people has been dimmed, and not enough people stand up for their rights for four reasons. One, they do not understand them due to being poorly educated in our schools. Two, many of these rights have been distorted from their original intent. Three, they've been programmed not to stand up for their rights lest they be labeled extremists. And four, and most importantly, the people who do understand are not well enough organized to do so. Loners get picked off one by one. People organized are hard to ignore. This is why people need to become involved in organization. Guys, this is what we're going to do. Our founders would be called extremists today. We must not engage in violence, nor can we back away from demanding that our rights be adhered to, regardless of the circumstances. One person standing up can be eliminated, but if everyone does it, they cannot be ignored. For instance, during the pandemic of 2020, a business owner who defied an executive order opened his or her business, they were picked off. If every business had defied the order, the government would have had to back down. As we pointed out, one modern method of abrogating our rights is when a president declares a state of national emergency. In this manner, the president takes on the mantle of a dictator by simply stating the emergency and signing a piece of paper and posting it into the Federal Register. It completely bypasses the people and establishes, for all practical purposes, 
an authoritarian government ruled by one person. In a free country, this cannot be allowed. And, by the way, it cannot be allowed even if the edict is for a good cause because it establishes the idea that it's okay to do something this way. The way we can restore our rights is by enough people understanding them, appreciating them, and demanding that those in government adhere to them. The spirit of the Bill of Rights must be restored. And the only way this can be done is if enough people, such as yourself, start educating others about the Bill of Rights and what they mean to us today and into tomorrow. Now, what we've been doing on Telegram is exactly that. See, we can't be classified as a militia, regardless if the majority of us are armed, but we are organizing. And what we've been doing in the past year, writing letters, sending emails, well, it's going to be crunch time on Friday. And um, wait till you see what I put together. Because rather than us use the John Birch Society curve of constitutional rights only, I've brought in more things that cannot be disputed, refuted, and put away. I've um, already put together a draft. It is a decree and a demand letter. Um, now, there are notions in there. One that I shared with you, there's another very, very big boom that no one thinks of. But I'll read to you the little excerpt that I put within Telegram. Blah, 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 Constitution to mandate that all Veterans Affairs Department employees receive a vaccine, experimental in parentheses, to maintain their employment. To further provide the illusion of a just declaration, another federal office, the Declared Administration's Justice Department, proclaimed that such a mandate is legally sound with no authority to do so. In essence, this is a direct attack on our innate right to liberty. The Department of Veterans Affairs mandate is essentially inferring that U.S. citizens are under conservatorship. Nowhere in any legislation of our state or U.S. Constitution does it state that a citizen of the United States of America is under government conservatorship. The notion of conservatorship is implied by the brazen civil liberty violations and the illegal ultimatum given to employees of a federal agency. This declaration and faux reinforcement by a department of the declared administration is promoting lawlessness and government collapse. Now, I gave you the sauce on that one. You have to sit and ponder on it because it's going to be pretty important. Now, that's only an excerpt. I think, let me see how many pages I have. Um, how many pages is this? I'm trying to see how many pages long it is because it's quite long. It's um, about four pages um, because we put down our declarations. Uh, usually when you contact these specific persons, there's usually a brief, but we do not require a brief. We are merely making statements of what is evident and requesting action. Well, demanding action. And therefore, um, we're going to see, because believe it or not, if there is no response, and that's what I'm trying to craft within a certain time period, um, 
we're going to have to file these in court in every single state. And uh, it's pretty much ready. So rather than us uh, uh, file it, we're going to give the benefit of the doubt to those that are appointed, elected in some place, mostly elected. Some are appointed. So I'm going to work with the state guardian groups tomorrow in order to ensure that for every state, because New Jersey, for example, has an appointed position, uh, that they're formulated correctly. And um, Texas is only going to send one. <laughs> but we can email the fuck out of all of them. So um, we're getting that together. I spent 10 hours straight. My butt was actually sore because I didn't even get up typing this. At first I had one where I was trying to do it from memory because I remembered the document. I just didn't remember the details and how it was supposed to be put in. So there's more facets and language and verbiage that I need to put in there. Um, it's pretty interesting. I know you guys are going to like it. So I wanted us to take a break so that way I can go get some coffee. I thought I could show the movie trailer for the movie Tesla, which is obviously full of lies, but it seems interesting. I think it's only playing on Hulu for some reason. When it's on Amazon Prime, we'll definitely watch it together. Is nature a gigantic cat? And if so, who strokes its back? May I introduce the brilliant Nikola Tesla, the greatest inventor of the age. If you Google Nikola Tesla, you get 34 million results. It's basically just four pictures. Beyond that, things get murky and more imaginative. Thomas Alva Edison. You gotta like Oh, Tesla. Didn't see you there before. I now have the pleasure of introducing you to a novel system of energy. Alternate currents. Just will transform the way the world works. No, no sparks. sparks. It's perfect. Where have you been hiding? Alternating current is a waste of time. Impractical and deadly. You live in your head. Doesn't everyone? You lack funding. Mr. Tesla thinks I owe him money. What was it? $50,000. Yes. Anne Morgan, daughter of J. Pierpont Morgan. A woman like that can make all your dreams come true. All my dreams are true. You want a lemonade? You work at night in a secret laboratory. You shoot lightnings from the earth to the sky. I'm trying to tame Wildcat, and I've become nothing but a mass of bloody scratches. How you like being scratched? Dream first. Hi there, so did you like the video? So Tesla didn't really give any fucks whatsoever. <laughs> and they took advantage of them. So let me uh, take a break with a nice little song. Let's go.
Don't hold yourself like that You'll hurt your knees Well, I kissed your mouth and back And that's all I need Build your world around And volcanoes melt you down And what I am to you Is not real And what I am to you You do not need And what I am to you what you mean to me Give me my Smiles and mouths Here and I'll Ask for the song was Volcano. It was a Damien Rice cover. I hope you guys liked it. I think it was pretty dope. So here we go, guys. I hope you guys are ready for this because now we're going to talk a little bit about Nixon, JFK, because we're going to be going back in time. But before we do that, I think it's important that I kind of update you on what's going on with the land with the Bureau of Land Management. 75 GOP lawmakers opposed Biden's embattled nominee, Tracy Stone Manning. You know, the terrorist, right? So <laughs> Bruce Westerman of Arkansas called on the president to withdraw his nomination. Uh, they are going to seek to put it down for a vote. The Democrats ushered it in so they can have an, a vote as early as Monday White House will not respond to any questions about it. Hmm, that's interesting. Now, I want you guys to pay attention. See the same people coming around with the same tactics. Now, while many might think that JFK hated Jimmy Hoffa, he actually admired him and was quite nice uh, because I don't know what you guys think of Jimmy Hoffa, but I think after today, you're going to see a different side of a story that you probably didn't uh, know about. And how JFK, RFK, and Jimmy Hoffa were all intertwined and had common, common people involved. I want you to... Um, Listen to an interview of Nixon's. This is an interview of Richard Nixon by Pat Buchanan on November 9th, 1982. Listen to this. Looking at the Kennedys, I make an interesting comparison. First, Edward Kennedy was the best politician of the three. He is the best politician. He's gregarious. He loves it. He's warm. Uh, John Kennedy, on the other hand, uh, was quite a shy person, really. 
uh, it was not easy for him to get out and shake hands and the rest. He did it very well. It wasn't easy for him. He was a quite private person. Uh, I would say that Bobby Kennedy, on the other hand, well, I, I would compare him as Alice Longworth used to. As he, he was like a 17th century Jesuit priest, uh -huh. passionate, uh, uh -huh. uh, one of, uh, who brooked no opposition and so forth, very intelligent and so forth. I think um, maybe we can get through LBJ in that period. Oh, yes, I can do that. Um, Okay. You know, there's this terrible book out on it. Uh, oh, I know it by uh, George read Reedy. It. Did you read? Is it Reedy's book? No, oh no, no this no, new Carol book. book. Yeah. Uh, it gets a rave review from uh, Clifton Fadiman in the Book of the Month. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Stand by. Shit, it makes him feel like a goddamn animal. Mm -hmm. Quiet. Because he was. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. laughs> he was a man. There's no question in my mind that in this century, the three greatest politicians, active politicians, were Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. Nobody else of the presidents was in their league as political operators. Listen, I don't want a president uh, who's warm on the outside and warm on the inside, too. I want one that's warm on the outside, but I want one who, when the tough decisions are made, is cold and tough and will make the right decision without uh, fear of failure. President Eisenhower was loyal too, uh, I must say. Uh, he, uh, but, but he believed, you know, he was a military man and he believed that people that are subordinates uh, carry out what the chief wants. Uh, I rem I'll never forget uh, that perhaps the man that Eisenhower and many European uh, people that have talked to me believe was perhaps the greatest chief of staff in World War II was Beetle Smith, General mm -hmm. Beetle Smith. And Beetle Smith, this was afterwards, was a neighbor of mine in Spring Valley. He came in one day and, and we'd had a couple of drinks and mm -hmm. tears were coming down. He was not well at the time. Out and he says, you know, I was just Ike's Pratt boy. Ike always had the Pratt boy. And he says, that's what you are. Well, it didn't bother me a bit. That was my job. Mm -hmm. A vice president, a member of the cabinet, a member of Congress who is a member of the president's party. He should always consider that he is dispensable and should do what the man wants uh, to carry out the policy. Because otherwise, the man's got to get down there in the ring. What happened to Richard Nixon when Eisenhower was president? Be bad for me. Uh, wouldn't matter that much, maybe, to the country. What happened to him could be disastrous. Hmm. Interesting. Now I'm going to take you to newly found tapes. These are from seven years ago. Uh, were found on Air Force One the day JFK died. You ready for this? Let's go. As history and tragedy were unfolding at Dealey Plaza, radio and telephone communications squawked between the Air Force Command Center, the White House, and Air Force One. This is a situation room I read from the AP bulletin. Kennedy apparently shot in head. He fell face down in back seat of his car. Blood was on his head. Mrs. Kennedy cried, oh no, and tried to hold up his head. Earlier this year, these rare audio recordings were discovered in the personal effects of General Chester Clifton Jr., a military aide to President John F. Kennedy. They want a post-mortem that needs to be done under law at Walter Reed. Forensic audio and video expert Ed Primo was tasked with remastering and piecing together the new tape with older, incomplete copies. It's spine tingling. It's, it gives you goosebumps when you listen to it. The result is an unflinching account of history unfolding in real time. 
That is correct. That is correct. We're hearing several commanders communicating logistical information about interrupting everybody's plans because the president was assassinated and what it's going to take to get them to all come together and deal with this disaster. The president is on board. The body is on board. The is on board. On the tapes, you can hear the military using code names. LBJ is volunteer. We're waiting for the swearing in at the plane before takeoff. That swearing in aboard Air Force One produced this iconic image of LBJ with a shaken Jackie Kennedy by his side. And after Air Force One was in the air, crews could be heard scrambling to sort out logistics. You can even hear LBJ passing on condolences to JFK's mother, Rose Kennedy. To Primo, just as interesting as what is on the tapes is what is not. There are a number of obvious edits. I think it's pretty simple. Whoever created the tapes had certain parts of the conversations they didn't want anybody to hear. It's good for people to listen for themselves and, and, and see how things develop. Um, sometimes see the roughness of, of history. John McAdams is a political science professor at Marquette University. He says these recordings are not likely to be the last pieces of history to surface, even 50 years after the assassination. The truth is a lot of stuff fell between the cracks. Uh, this particular tape, uh, which was in the possession of General Clifton, uh, took uh, almost uh, half a century to show up. The historical record on all kinds of fronts is a bit more ragged than, than, than one might think. A bit more ragged than one might think. Interesting. So, I mean, where do we go with that? Well, let's go to this. I want you guys to sit back and relax. Jimmy Hoffa's anniversary is coming up, so here we go. Almost 20 years, this man, Jimmy Hoffa, was the most powerful union leader in America. As president of the Teamsters, the truckers' union, he was the ultimate blue-collar hard man. Teamsters always had a reputation of they're the guys that'll break your legs if you mess with them. But on the 30th of July, 1975, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. And ever since then, people have been looking for a body. It seems to be an annual rite of passage for people in Metro Detroit to be inundated with Hoffa digs and Hoffa searches every couple years. The FBI are still interested in Hoffa because he's the key to a conspiracy that links the gambling casinos of Las Vegas to Nixon's White House and the mob. Jimmy Hoffa became one of America's most infamous and influential characters when he became the president of the country's largest union, the Teamsters, in 1958. 
As leader of the Teamsters, Hoffa controlled almost every truck driver in the United States. At the height of Jimmy Hoffa's reign, he was one of the most powerful people in America and had the ability with one phone call, one snap of the finger, one nod of the head to literally stop all transportation of goods uh, across the country, could prevent your milk from being in your refrigerator, your bread from being on your table. Hoffa made his name organizing local strikes in Detroit in the 30s. But strikes weren't enough. Back in the 1930s, it was very difficult in this country to organize labor unions. And the companies would hire goon squads to beat up people and break up strikes. And I think Jimmy Hoffa decided that he was going to fight fire with fire. So he made a deal with the Mafia to strong arm anyone who stood in his way. In return, the mob got what they wanted. Easy money. Hoffa and the Teamsters saw organized crime as people they could use as conduits to power. And it kind of became, in some ways, a deal with the devil. It was a deal that lasted 40 years and which both sides grew rich from. Under Hoffa, the Teamsters Union grew to a membership of over one and a half million. And most of those were paying into a pension fund. And all the time Hoffa was letting the mob use their pension fund as its personal bank. We don't know how much money was taken from the Teamsters pension fund. It was probably tens of millions of dollars. The mob wanted the money for various ventures, casinos, land ventures, and according to the people that uh, really investigated Hoffa, a lot of it just ended up in bad investments and in people's pockets. But Hoffa's relationship with the mob and his illegal use of Teamsters funds finally caught up with him. And in 1967, he was sent to jail. With his raincoat covering handcuffs, Hoffa arrives at federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. There was an allegation that he had uh, tried to bribe a juror to deadlock the jury in this case in Tennessee. They got him for several years on that. And then there was a case out of Chicago where he had allegedly uh, misused Teamsters Fund to bail himself out of another problem. And the total price tag on that was 13 years in prison. While he was behind bars, Hoffa tried to ensure that it was business as usual by appointing his deputy, Frank Fitzsimmons, as acting president of the union. But that, many believe, was the decision that would lead to his death. Frank Fitzsimmons was the definition of someone you could tell what to do. And the mob got a taste of what life was like with someone that was much easier to control looking after that golden goose, which was the pension fund. But even behind bars, Hoffa was a hero of the Teamsters' rank and file, and they wanted him back. So, some claim a deal was done with one of the biggest criminals in American history. President Richard Nixon. We had a problem here called Watergate, and essentially there were some people that were involved in President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign that broke into the Democratic National Party headquarters. And the story goes was that if they let Hoff out, the Teamsters were going to give Nixon and his people $300,000 as hush money to silence the Watergate burglars so they wouldn't tell authorities that the Nixon people put them up to the burglary. 
Tapes from the White House appear to show Nixon discussing the deal with his assistant press secretary, John Colson. Hello. Mr. Colson, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Uh, Chuck, Mitchell is, uh, you know, pressing to get a decision on the Hoffa thing. Right, Fitzsimmons wants to get Hoffa out because that's the only way that he can keep control of the pro Hoffa forces within the Teamsters. All right. So he wants him out, but he wants him out with strings. I'll get Mitchell a call, see what the latest dope is, and we'll uh, take a crack at it. All right, sir. Okay. Thank you, Mr. President. Whether Nixon took the money or not, he did cut Hoffa's 13-year sentence, and the former union leader served only five. Not surprisingly, Hoffa wanted his old job back. To him, that Teamsters presidency was, it was the most important thing in his life to him. It was just as important as his family to him. It was like, it was like a child to him. This man's spearheaded unionism in this country. The mob didn't want him back because they wanted to enjoy continued access to the Teamster pension funds. Fitzsimmons didn't want him back because Fitzsimmons was the president of the Teamsters. No, it's not that. It's not the mob. It's the government didn't want Hoffa back. See, Hoffa started off there and he was like, you know what? I can make this work. Fuck this. The people are working. They're doing all the work. We should control this. The corporations don't control them. They're not going to work them to death. That was the idea behind the union. Now, the pension fund that he had was to pay for the bodies. And obviously, you know, obviously was banking with people that would bank with him. It's not like they had an amalgamated bank like they do now, all nicely structured. And Fitzsimmons was actually, you know, very compliant with the D'Alessandro, with the Pelosi family. So the government hated Hoffa. The mafia hated Hoffa, therefore. And thank you, Jimmy. I don't need your help. They did the math. And the math told them that it was better for them to have a guy in power that they knew they could puppet as opposed to Hoffa, who was a bit of a thorn in their side when it came to kind of anyone wanting to tell him what he should do. But Hoffa couldn't let go of the union that he'd made into a major force in America. I believe that Jimmy Hoffa was so obsessed with becoming president of the Teamsters again, that it actually blinded him from the physical danger that he was putting himself in. Many believe it was this inability to see that he was playing with fire that led to Hoffa's mysterious disappearance. On the 30th of July, 1975, Hoffa told his wife he was going to the Matches Red Fox Diner in Detroit for a meeting with some mob connections from his time as president of the Teamsters. It was the last anyone saw of him. But author Scott Bernstein believes he knows what happened. Hoffa showed up at two o'clock for his meeting, sat in the dining room for over a half hour until he realized that he had been stood up. He claims that just as he was about to go home, a car drove up. In it was his trusted friend, the mobster, Tony Garcioni. 
and at least one other. I don't think Hoffa would have gotten into that car if he thought his life was in danger. He felt comfortable enough with whoever was in that vehicle that he climbed in and went away. I believe they took him on a ride that would have lasted three or four minutes to that house that belonged to Carlo Licata, a member of organized crime. I am 99% confident that he was taken to Carlo Licata's house and murdered there. But if Hoffa was murdered by the mob, where is his body? You've got people that said he was buried under Giant Stadium. You've got people that said he uh, was buried in a field in Oakland Township, north of Detroit. You've got people that said he was buried at a horse farm in western Wayne County. I'd like to see the mystery solved. I'd like them to find find Hoffa's body, but they're not going to find Hoffa's body because it was disposed of. The FBI mounted several major searches, the latest in 2013. But nobody has ever been found. In 2010, they took samples from the house where he was allegedly shot, but no DNA linked Jimmy Hoffa to the scene. Hoffa's middle name is Riddle. And this is one of those mysteries that's wrapped in an enigma inside a riddle, and we may never get the answer to it. Well, let's see if we can get the answer today, right, guys? So let's take a look at this. I want you guys to listen to Senate testimony. Did you say anything to the effect that the jury treated you very well? And that you thought that you could do very well before a jury? I know that's pretty ridiculous. Did you say anything I like that? I did not. And I appeal to the chair that that be taken out of the record. You've got people in Detroit, at least 15, who have a police record. You've got Joey Glimco in Chicago. I say you're not tough enough to get rid of these people then. But Hoffa was contemptuous. He denied any wrongdoing, taunting the crusading young investigator. Did you say that SOB, I'll break his back? Who? You. Say to who? To anyone. Take give your speech. I don't even know who I was talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. What do you... uh, Mr. Hoffa, all I'm trying to find out, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm trying to find out whose back you were going to break. Figure his speech. Figure his speech. That's Kennedy. His, uh, ties. Uh, with the uh, leading uh, members of the Communist Party in the United States, in, in the world, and the fact that Mr. Goldblatt is uh, identified uh, continuously and repeatedly as a, a an important uh, member of the Communist Party, and that's he's the Secretary Treasurer of this local with whom you've made this alliance. I don't know if Harry Bridges is a Democrat or, or a, a Communist, or whether Goldblatt's a Communist, and this is not the issue behind the quest of transportation unity. The workers have so elected them under the free democratic rights of American and under the Taft-Hartley law. And they have filed for 10 years, according to Goldblatt's testimony, non-communist affidavits. All right, would you uh, allow... If you think it's it, wrong, you investigate that. Would you allow, as a Teamster official, 
Um, Did you hear that? He said, I don't know if he's a Democrat, I mean communist, right? Democrats were the commies. He said it. Man who was a communist, who was elected by the membership. We don't have any communist in just our team. So just a moment, please, that I know of. But if the membership saw fit to elect a man who had been tagged, tagged, mind you, as a communist, who disavowed the fact that he was a communist, and no proof was presented under our constitution of the International Union, we would not be in a position to dislodge him from his elected position. Neither would the courts let us do it. However, the provision you're looking for in our constitution is very clear. <laughs> and it talks about the question of communism. I helped write the article, so I know it. You don't need to read it to me. Right. And I say to you, though, that I'm talking about tagged individuals and bridges and Goldblatt are tagged. Oh, Mr. Hoffman. Tagged. What do you mean? There's no question about Mr. Goldblatt, although there can be a question about Mr. Hoffa. There's no question about Mr. Goldblatt. Wait a minute. Just he a moment. Don't say anything about a question about Hoffa. There is no question about Hoffa. And don't you say that either. Don't you say that I'm a communist or even affiliated with one. You said that enough around this country. And I want the American press to know that I resent the fact that there is any inference that I'm a communist, that I'm associated with or controlled by communists. And don't use this as a sounding board for headlines for that purpose. And I appeal to the chair that that be taken out of the record and that nobody cast any aspersions on my loyalty to this country. I object to it, sir. At the moment, read, read back. No, I'll, I'll straighten the record out. I was talking about Mr. Bridges and Mr. Goldblatt. Don't put me in their class, then. Why did you put him in their class? No, I just said there is, although there might be some question, and I said Mr. Hoffa instead of Mr. Bridges. I meant, uh, although there might be some question about Mr. Bridges, there is absolutely no question about what? Mr. Goldblatt. And evidently, you agree the same thing, Mr. Hoffa. Wait a minute. Or otherwise, you wouldn't have said, don't put me in their class. Don't you put me in a class that they're tagged. That's what I said. And I say tagged. But I want to have, if you will, sir, the record clear that there are no aspersions on me being associated with, controlled, or any part of the Communist Party in America. Well, all right. Uh, as of now, there is no such implication. That isn't correct, Just sir. Just a moment. Wait, uh -huh. Just a moment, now. If there is, we'll read the record back and straighten it out. Thank you, sir. Is there any such implication? In alliance with Mr. Harry Bridges and Mr. Goldblatt. And you're going to get back to them too, then. And the fact that they are uh, have been associated with the Communist Party. Well, then and you'll that be you've made an alliance with them. Also, and the, that you've made an alliance with them. And I think it's a very critical situation. Now, I would. Did you receive any of the fee that he obtained, the $40,000 that he got in that case, directly or indirectly? Absolutely not. And you, you know it. You had, been, you had been in business uh, with Mr. Matheson, had you not? With my own money. But you had been in business. With my own money, yes. Uh, do you have any evidence of the $20,000 in cash that you put into the business? I don't need any evidence. You'll just... take my word for it as the Internal Revenue has. That's what's up! Could you describe a little of it, uh, Mr. Hobbs? No, sir, I cannot. And I don't, care to, I don't care to try and recall... Back my entire lifetime, since I started working at the age 17, as to how I accumulated money or how I spent it, to finally arrive at having $20,000 I could afford to invest, and could, finally lost. Could you ask, was it in cash that you put it yes. in? Yes. Was there, do you have any record of it? No. Would you tell us where you got the cash? I accumulated it. From your uh, salary? From whatever investments I had, or salary or income, did but it was of, accumulated. Did any of this come out of the winnings that... Uh, Mr. It Brennan made it the racetrack. Very easily it could have. Could I ask you whether Mr. Brennan is still winning at the track? 
I believe he is. I hope we have luck this year. We haven't finished yet. How much have you turned over to him to gamble? So far this year, nothing. You kept me too busy. How much I has he uh, won for you? <laughs> How much has he won for you? None this, this moment? Year? I haven't, been in, I haven't been in the question of, of the trying to gain, make any money on horse racing this year yet. Been too busy. But in other words, as I understood it, he had won $64,000 in cash. Well, that's not hard to believe. That's in 50, up till 57. <laughs> Go out to the track. Now, what about since 57? How much has he won in cash for you since then? I don't know. I don't have the records You've been to the track with him? Oh, I go maybe once a year, once every three years. But he usually goes. That's right. You give him the money? That's right. And he bets I where did. he wants I it. I haven't this year. I see. Well, now you couldn't. You, this I don't believe I did last year, by the way, either. It's pretty busy here, too. No, that's right. And it's possible that the $20,000 might have come out of the money that Bert Brennan won for you at the race. Conceivably. But you couldn't tell us any other source. I have no rec I have no basic figures of income per day, per week, or where it came from. I file my internal revenue report. I'm sure they check it. Could you ask? It, so could you far tell as us? I know why they haven't contended it. Could you tell us what? Uh, would you feel that it was in uh, an unreasonable question if we asked you how much cash you have now? I wouldn't answer it. You wouldn't care to answer. No. It. You wouldn't care to tell us the sources of it either, no. would you? I've never been completely convinced, Mr. Hoffer, to be frank with you, that uh, Mr. Brennan did win this money at the racetrack. Why don't you ask him? Yeah, I did, and he took the Fifth Amendment. Well, maybe he has a reason to them, Mr. I Kennedy. Wouldn't, I think he might have a reason, but you suggested we ask Mr. Brennan. Mr. Brennan then took the Fifth Amendment when he was asked the question, and I've never considered either that that was a satisfactory explanation of the cash that you had, or that these numerous several people, such as business agents, who themselves had to borrow money in order to survive, that they loaned you $2,000 in cash without any note and without interest. Thank you for reviewing the testimony. Does it suggest anything to you, Mr. Hoffman? doesn't suggest anything except the fact that you're trying again, as you have many times in this hearing, to bring a headline about or to embarrass Hoffa. That's all. No, I'm attempting to give you my reaction as these hearings come to a close as to where this cash might have come from. Then you and you want to I read the not, record. I'm, I want to make it clear for the record then that, I cannot what accept, I said then. that I cannot accept the explanation that this was won in this casual way at the racetrack by Mr. Brennan in view of the fact that Mr. Brennan takes the Fifth Amendment when he is asked how he won the money. And you disprove it. It's extremely difficult because you do deal in cash. And I'm going to continue. Tough shit. <laughs> That's and you're going to what? I didn't Privacy hear the end. I'm going to continue, sir. Well, I think that's an interesting uh, way to uh, conduct uh, your affairs as the head of a uh, large union. I think it's an American way. To deal in cash? Any way you have, as long as it's money that is subject to being able to put into trade and is paid income tax on as gainfully earned. How much cash do you have now, Mr. Hoffman? I don't know. You haven't got any idea how much cash you have? This is not the internal revenue. I refuse to give them a net worth statement. And I do not believe I'm required to give it here. Yep. That's what's up. Privacy of papers. That man knew what he was doing. He wasn't going to bite. He wasn't going to bite. It's none of your fucking business. Well, you need to tell. No, I don't need to tell you anything. Don't need to tell you anything is what he said. Don't need to tell you anything. Listen to this. Okay, this is uh, Gianni Russo talking about it quickly before we see how they solved Hoffa's disappearance. Hold on. Here we go. Uh, was Nixon up? Oh, my God. Yeah. Nixon. Nixon was. Uh, I mean, there's so many that were. But Nixon. And I can't figure out. People didn't figure this out. We all know Jimmy Hoffa while he was in prison. Yeah. Found God. Yeah. And he was going to come out. And this particular time, I was on the FBI wiretap all over the world. They got me. They, I knew 
I was screwed. So, but the good news, indirectly, he got me out of that mess because I just borrowed $72 million from uh, the Teamsters Union to build my hotel in Vegas. So, and I was borrowing a lot of money, but you don't have papers. What do you need? You got it. So he was going to come out and disclose Frank Fitzsimmons and all of them of what they did with the pension fund and the brotherhood would vote him in. So they called Nixon. They said, I mean, uh, yeah, Nixon. She got to pardon Jimmy Hoffa. Is what? She pardoned Jimmy Hoffa. And he pardoned him. So they didn't kill him. <laughs> That's the story. Nobody can tell you that story. He pardoned Jimmy Hoffa so he they could kill him. Pardoned Jimmy Hoffa so certain people can kill him. Who killed him? Jimmy Cooney? Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, uh, uh, James Cooney? Something like that. A name like that. He's in prison right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, apparently. That's the story. I mean, yeah. there's obviously a lot of different stories when it comes down to that. Well, well, that's why I laugh all the time when they say, oh, the FBI has a tip that they're buried in a farm. And they go there and dig up farms. Nothing comes out. Yeah. I'll tell you where Jimmy Alpha is. How's that? That Buick, they took the axles out and the motor block out. And they delivered it to friends of ours. And they crushed it. The car crushing thing. And mob guys were bidding on that pedestal. It's a four by four piece of steel. The friction, heat, and all that, there is no DNA. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, I mean, there's a couple of us that know the story. That's why they said, oh, he was buried in the giant stadium. And he's, he's buried. They come up with all these stories where Jimmy Hoffer is. <laughs> Jimmy Hoffer is in a mob boss's basement game room with an eight foot piece of plate glass over it. And they put their feet up. <laughs> it's only certain guys know that, man. That's nuts. That's so badass. But let's see about this formal, you know, report on it. Here we go. This is from 2019 when they finally solved it. After 45 years, the tale of Jimmy Hoffa has remained one of the most suspicious and intriguing cold cases in American mafia history. A number of theories have been tossed around from hired hitmen, mob revenge, and even FBI witness protection. But the real truth has eluded investigators and mafia enthusiasts ever since he never came out on that fateful 1975 day. So what really happened to Jimmy? Do investigators now know who actually killed him or could he still be alive? Let's find out. Before we dive into the who done it, we need to know who Jimmy Hoffa actually was and how he ended up with a target on his back in the first place. Born in the town of Brazil, Indiana, Hoffa's journey starts with the tough times he faced as a kid. His father, who was a coal miner, died at the hands of terrible working conditions in the mines. At this point, Jimmy was only seven years old. Without dad around, he was forced to leave school at 14 and enter the workforce to support his family and make ends meet. That ignited the switch in Hoffa's brain that wanted to pursue fair working conditions for everyone. Ultimately, it was this activism that would become the start of his eventual demise, becoming a powerful union man who found himself knee-deep with the mob. It's a massive transition to go from hard-working teenager to a trustworthy enemy of the mob, though, right? Well, he continued to be active in the working community in his youth. He was organizing strikes at the Kroger grocery store in Detroit, and at 18, he managed to score pay rises for a group of dock workers by organizing another strike. A year later, in 1932, he was invited to join the local branch, known 
number 299 of the Teamsters. For anyone unfamiliar, the Teamsters were one of the nation's largest labor union groups at the time. 90% of U.S. transportation was controlled by Teamsters, most of which was related to trucking. At that time, trucking unions were heavily influenced by organized crime. So for Hoffa to unify and expand trucking unions, he had to sit at the table alongside some very dangerous men. As Hoffa's influence in the organization grew into the late 30s and into the 40s, he found himself facing his first shady involvement. Detroit, being a key stop in the Midwest transportation system, was home to other organizations that Hoffa wasn't involved with. So in 1941, a turf battle between trucking rivals started to become problematic. What did Hoffa do? He went to the mob. After some time, he started to develop a relationship with the mob, which, if you've ever seen a mafia movie, hardly ever ends positively. By December 1946, Hoffa was the president of his local Teamsters branch, which meant he had more power and, of course, more access to money. Jimmy Hoffa would dip into the Teamsters' pension funds and offer lower loans to the local mob, who'd usually funnel that cash into building Las Vegas casinos, and in return, Teamsters and Hoffa got pretty impressive returns on those loans. Even though the workers were aware of all of this, they didn't care because they were getting benefits and pay raises that they hadn't even thought possible before Hoffa came on board. Hoffa continued to climb the ranks, eventually becoming president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters in 1957. Considering the influence unions had on the country, this made Hoffa one of the most powerful men in America. So the relationship with the mob was a strong and stable one in the 1940s and 50s, but things took a turn for the worse in 1964. Hoffa was convicted of attempted bribery of a grand juror, for which he was slapped with an eight-year jail sentence. And fraud, which added another five years on top. All up, he was given 13 years behind bars. Despite the imprisonment, Hoffa remained president of the Teamsters Union until 1971, refusing to relinquish the power. 1971 was about five years into his 13-year sentence, but it was also the year he got a literal get-out-of-jail-free card, thanks to one man, President Nixon. Following Hoffa's release, he was gifted a Teamsters pension of $1.7 million in cold hard cash. That's close to $11 million in today's value. Then came the fateful day, July 30th, 1975, the last time that Jimmy would ever be seen on planet Earth that we know of. Was it a coincidence that just two weeks earlier, federal investigators realized that the Teamsters pension fund had been robbed of hundreds of millions of dollars? So what exactly happened on the day that we last saw Hoffa? Well, we know that he was at his Detroit home in the morning, then reportedly left to have a 2 p.m. meeting at a restaurant called the Maccus Red Fox. This was with Anthony Provisano and Anthony Giacoloni, two men heavily involved in the mob. At two I should just say that I actually worked with a guy named Provisano. 15 p.m., Hoppe called his wife from a payphone complaining that he had been stood up. But of course, he wasn't. The next day after he didn't come home, his wife got worried and called Louis Linto, a close friend of Jimmy's, to check out the restaurant. Linto found Hoffa's car unlocked in the parking lot, but there was no sign of Hoffa nor sign of struggle. That day on July 31st, the FBI was alerted. It turned out to be a wild goose chase with Hoffa eventually presumed dead in 1982. Not because the authorities proved it, but because they couldn't prove that he was alive either. Now, there were obviously a number of question marks from that day. However, witness statements indicated that Hoffa may have driven away as a passenger in someone else's car. In a Mercury Marquis Broom driven by his so-called friend Charles Chucky O'Brien. But during interrogations, O'Brien had denied being involved in Hoffa's disappearance at all. 
DNA tests suggest otherwise. In 2001, the FBI matched DNA from Hoffa's hair with a loose strand of hair found in Charles O'Brien's car. If that wasn't enough, German shepherds allegedly also found Hoffa's scent in the backseat of the trunk. Despite all this, O'Brien wasn't the main suspect. There were a number of theories circulating as to who could have been responsible for the heinous act. Many were under the impression that his disappearance was at the hands of the mob. When Hoffa got out of jail, the mob had already formed a relationship with Hoffa's successor, Frank Fitzsimmons. Since Hoffa wanted to return to his presidential position, they didn't want him to ruin the progress they'd made in his absence, especially considering how much money was changing hands. Furthermore, they were concerned that he'd rat to the Fed. Hoffa got out of jail close to eight years earlier than expected, so it only makes sense that they were suspicious of collaboration with the authorities. They didn't want to take the risk, so they had to make him go away. Another theory floated was surrounding Tony Provisano. A man named Donald Francos, an ex-mafia man who became an informant, insisted that Provisano ordered a hit on Hoffa and that it was carried out by New York mobsters Jimmy Coonan and John Sullivan. Donald Francos also insisted that Chucky O'Brien, the so-called friend of Hoffa driving the Mercury, was there to lure Hoffa into the car. Hoffa trusted him, so why wouldn't he get in? On the surface, Franco's story made a lot of sense. However, he also believes that Hoffa's body is buried beneath the end zone of the Giants NFL Stadium. Another suspect was Richard Kuklinski, a.k.a. The Iceman. An author named Philip Carlo interviewed Kuklinski for hours on end and wrote about it in his book called The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer. Richard Kuklinski was a notorious hitman who confessed to killing Jimmy Hoffa in exchange for $40,000. Here's the issue, though. He wasn't the only one to confess. Around 100 others claimed to have killed Hoffa as well, so it becomes a case of he said, she said. For the majority of the investigation, the FBI believed that Frank the Irishman Sheeran, a self-professed hitman, was instructed by the mafia to execute Hoffa. Well, according to the FBI's 1976 Hoffa X memo, the mob ordered the hit so that Hoffa wouldn't take back the position of the Teamsters Union president. Now, to tie all this together to contemporary pop culture in Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman, spoiler alert, the character of Frank Sheeran confesses on his deathbed that he did, indeed, kill Jimmy Hoffa. Many think that's the be-all and end-all of it. Well, it's not. And here's why. That confession is based on hearsay and speculation. It's from the 2004 book by Charles Brandt, who was Sheeran's lawyer, called I Heard You Paint Houses, which has some doubt over its legitimacy. However, in 2005, the FBI investigated the house Sheeran described on his deathbed. They actually did find some blood, so it matched the story that was told by Sheeran, but the DNA was inconclusive, so it became a roadblock. On top of all that, Sheeran and Hoffa were actually very good friends at times. So if Sheeran was on his deathbed anyway, who's to say he wouldn't simply lie and falsely admit to the murder in order to distract everyone from Hoffa's real story? There aren't just theories about who did it, but also where the body lies today. As the result of what Marvin the Weasel Elkin said, Hoffa might have been thrown into the foundations of Detroit's Renaissance Center when the building was being cemented, haunting it possible nonetheless. When the foundations were in place, tons of concrete flowed into them and allegedly at some point, Someone slipped Hoffa's body into the wet cement, now encased under Detroit's most visible landmark. Meanwhile, according to Dan Moldea, a leading Hoffa expert and author, the body could be buried deep in a New Jersey landfill alongside barrels of chemical waste. What if he wasn't killed, though? What if instead, follow me here, he was put into FBI witness protection? It's possible. Hold on a second. Someone made a comment, CIA asset De Niro. Let me tell you a fun story about De Niro. Did you know that De Niro was actually um, in the Navy and got kicked out, supposedly, for misconduct? So weird. 
but he really wasn't. De Niro was actually part of the information warfare base in Pensacola, Florida, same one I went to. He had a legacy there of being one of the smartest people. And I can just tell you, if you remember correctly, we saw that video of the OSS hiring actors and citizens, right? I just thought I'd let you know. I, I saw the comment, and I've never actually told you guys that he was in Pensacola, Florida at Corey Station <laughs> when they pulled him out. So I just thought I'd, um, I'd make that statement quickly. Now, the question, let's rewind that. So what if he was pulled out and put into some sort of protection? landfill alongside barrels of chemical waste. What if he wasn't killed though? What if instead, follow me here, he was put into FBI witness protection? It's possible. Henry Hill, a New York City mobster who inspired Scorsese's Goodfellas, was put into witness protection. He helped the FBI make 50 convictions. Same with Leroy Nicky Barnes, a.k.a. Mr. Untouchable, who turned over 109 names of criminals after being known as one of the biggest drug lords in American history. So why rule out the idea of Jimmy Hoffa being in hiding after divulging information about the mob's antics? Perhaps the FBI had been circulating false rumors in order to throw people off the trail. It's a little far-fetched, but not impossible. For all we know, as many others theorize, he could have been alive and well, living the high life in Mexico until passing away naturally. In the words of U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider, It's unresolved. There will be more to come on this. Frankly, we have an inkling that might just be right. Until we know more, this will continue to be one of the most enduring mysteries in American crime history. That's all for the cold case of Jimmy Hoffa. Cold case, cold case. Now, um... There's a mafia boss that uh, I want to end today's show a little bit late with who tells you how he disappeared. Now, what if the meeting wasn't with mobsters, but it was with government officials? I'm just saying. Business when I was 19 years old, really heavy. I knew every man, every boss, and I worked for the men who were controlled by these men, the culinary workers, and the Teamsters. Jimmy Hopper was one of my best customers. Jimmy every Hopper time was he, one of your best customers. Every time he had a headache, I was the aspirin. It was simple as that. We got along. I became very friendly with Jimmy. I'm the last man that he came to see when he was trying to get the union back by a claim. When he came into South Jersey, called a friend of his in the Teamsters, said, would you call that little guy? Tell him I want to see him. I'm at the rickshaw. I like to talk to him. I knew what it was. So I said, okay, he, could, he called me. And I went. I went there. I brought two friends with me. I made them sit outside in me because I didn't trust nobody. In those days. And I was good friends with Jimmy. So they sat in the lobby. Ronnie Turchie and Mike Marone, they're both doing them under the dirt. And I went in to see him. I saw him talking with John Greeley. He was the team three. Went over, we hugged. We always hugged. We always, because we became friends besides me doing and taking away his headaches once, once in a while. When somebody wanted to pull their Teamster local out of his international, and he was getting, and were making speeches and whatever, he called for me. He sent word to the guys or whoever they were. 
What do you mean by you were the aspirin to his headaches? What, course, did he, he, what did you he, do? Well, let me, let me explain. Please. I went to see the, the, the certain gentleman who worked. And I talked to him. He said, no, we're pulling it out, this and that. This. I said, do you know what you this is my, do you know what you're doing to yourself? You're doing to Jimmy and the rest of the team? Yes, I do. And you say, no, you're, you're still going to try to pull out? You're going to make a mistake. And that's all I said. I'll see you. And within months, nobody could find that guy. He just disappeared. Then they found him somewhere, laying down with two or three holes in his head. And that, that local stood in the International. That's how he built the International. And they loved him because he treated them well. But some men, their ego explodes their sense of propriety. And that's how we became friends. And he never called no one else when he had a, a headache. That's why he came to see me in the rickshaw. One to sit down. I said, no, let's stand up and talk in a corner. It was by the bar. It was after lunch. It was quiet. He said, Ralph, I'm going to take over the local again, the union, the international. By a claim, he was strong. Jimmy was a strong guy. I said, Jimmy, why are you doing this? You've got all the money in the world. I know you have it. you you got a great pension. You got a great family. Josie was sleeping upstairs, his wife. What, what's wrong with you? He said, Ralph, it's the only thing I know how to do. I said to myself, he wasn't a womanizer like most, most men. Are. He wasn't. No, no, definitely not. He wasn't a drunk. And he wasn't a gambler. Here's the things that men do when they have money and time. He didn't do any of these. And I, I, I'm telling because I know. I said, just go back and enjoy your life, Jimmy. You did everything you had to do. I love everybody loves Ralph, I'm going to ask you to do something. Please. I know the state of Jersey and all the teamsters. They love you and they fear you. Please get them to, when I go into the convention, to back me. I said, Jim, I'm going to give you one answer. First of all, a man can't serve two kings. You know where I was, what I was almost born into. He says, yes, I do. I said, well, I'm going to have to go and see him. And if that man washes his hands of you, I'll help you. Because I didn't like the punks that were pulling out for him. They promised him this, they promised him that. They gave him nothing. But they gave him freedom. And they, he's had his pension. He had everything. I said, okay, I'll give you a call and I'll let you know. Please, Ralph, I'm going to find out shortly. Shook his hand. I've seen my two friends. Okay, it's nobody. Everything's okay. Yeah. I went to see Angelo Bruno at his home in South Philadelphia, where he was killed right in front of there. But that's another story. Went in. His wife answered her sewer. Knocked him quietly. Oh, Ralph, what are you doing here? I said, when the king calls, his people have to come save him. Ralph, come on in. He said, I know what you got. I know that other guy came into the city. Look at him, like the FBI was. And what do you want now? I said, he asked me to help him to be teamster boss again. He said, Ralph, that ain't going to happen. Everything's been done. Agreements paid. Everything's done. Tell him to go home and enjoy his life. I said, I told him that already, but he wants me to come and help him. No. Don't go near him. Don't go by him. After you, you told him already, well, he don't have to be told again. Send him a word with someone else. You stay away from them. I said, well, just stay away from them. I'm telling you. 
what's wrong, Ange? This guy did everything for you, for everybody. Because that's how I was with Ange. Because I was Ange's last moment of everything. He said, the man upstate Jersey, you know who I mean, the man that you went one day and you see he was up on the roof with the pigeons, flying pigeons. Oh, you, oh. you want me to go see him? No, they're going to do it. And they'll take care of this business. My God. I said, is that your last? He said, that's my last time. Okay, good. I'll see you later. I love you. I'll kiss him with the cheek. And boom, I left. I knew he was going to be dead within, or missing. I didn't know what they were. In two or three weeks. And he was. So they had already planned that man's death. Again, listen carefully. He had all the money in the world. He had a pension plan, but his passion was making sure that workers were taken care of and that the government wasn't in control of the Teamsters. See, at that time, the mafia was getting run out of business. If you remember, President Trump had talked about how they owned everything in real estate, how they were taking everything. And it was at that time that they were being taken out. You know, the local mobs that controlled everything. And that is where they grasped onto that last dying breath of giving portions of it to the government so the government leaves them alone to die off nicely without taking all the families out. I mean, but why would you ever trust the CIA? And you lose always because you cannot trust those that are there always just to lie. So, um, I hope today was kind of eye-opening. His disappearance uh, is um, has an has a memorial anniversary on the thirtieth of July, and I thought that's a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting uh, date. And and I thought I would just kind of bring that up. It's important that people know how big fighters get taken down by the government at all times and how people that know their rights and assert their rights are always railroaded, always, well, they always come after them. They always come after them because they don't want them giving hope to the people. That's the problem. Really wish that people had more hope in themselves. Now, there was this amazing clip that um, I found today, just to end it, of another American citizen asserting their rights. Take a listen. Good morning, supervisors. Uh, thank you for, for being here, listening to us. Uh, before I, I go further, though, I'd like to address Ms. Wilma Wooten and that propaganda that you were sharing. This, this is not factual. We've actually... Uh, being that we are not Cuba yet or North Korea, we still have access to the internet. And it's beautiful because your department has done a fantastic job of documenting the deaths in this county. So what I've done is taken that information which you've provided to, uh, to ensure that I'm an informed citizen and I know when you're lying. So here we go. Uh, April 2021, there were 147 people who died in this county. 
Whatever the positive tests say with this PCR test, which we know to be unscientific and be used at 45 thresholds, which makes these positive tests false positives. We know this, and we also know that 147 people died in this county in, in the month of May. Or, uh, forgive me, April. So let's go to May. How many people died in May? Miss Wilma Wooten was talking about how all these people are dying. 54. We had 54 deaths in the county of San Diego. I don't care about the positives because obviously the PCR test is bunk and we know that. So let's go back to the deaths because that's hard evidence that we can use. In the month of June, how many deaths did we have, Nathan Fletcher? 80. How many residents are in this county? 3 million? 3.3 million residents in this county. We're using propaganda that Wilma Wooten is using from the PCR test that we know that has been tested to be bunk because we've had 80 people die in this county. How many rights are we going to take away before we look at the facts? We know what you're trying to do. There are good supervisors up here that are trying to fight for freedom like the Constitution, but where are the rest of you? Why are you silencing people and using this jargon to scare us into submission? When are you going to speak the truth, Wilma? We're calling you out because we, the citizens of America, are tired of these lies. We get lied to regularly. We're used to these lies. Who's going to stand up for the truth? Who's going to stand up from the, for the truth? Who's going to point it out? See, because that's exactly it. They're giving you fake news. Remember, they said that it was imperative to make sure that there was freedom of the press. Well, the only free press is us right now. We are the news. Free press is dead. I hope you guys like that one. So on that, on that note, you guys, I want to wish you a fabulous evening. And there's this video that someone sent me from this YouTube account that I want to play and I can't seem to find it. Let me see if I can locate it somewhere else. Oh gosh. I wanted to have it instead of a song. I wanted you guys to see this. It's just so good. So, so good. Uh, it was a great montage. Um, gosh, darn it. Where is it? <sighs> great. I am not going to find it. Am I? Let me see if it's on the YouTube channel. Give me a second. Um, um, no, no. Hmm. Where is it? Ugh. I can't find it. I'll find it for tomorrow. How's that? Uh, I'll make sure to line it up. Now, I'll probably close with, uh, <laughs> with a great song. Here we go. We got troops in our troops. Camo, and we strapped on our boots. They keep sending us Smiths in those suits. So we online now, reduce attributes. VPN in while deep state sinning. Live by the bottle. We keep winning. Roll on the throttle with five good minutes. We can play ball all nine innings. We don't want bio labs in our state. Ten years planning, they choosing our fate. But I don't like poison mixed in my state. And how much more do they think we gonna take? Bill Gates couldn't come up with the update. Simple, all of that bullshit gonna wait.